You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we make this confession in song and we pray that it's true, not just of our lips, but of our hearts, that you are great and glorious, you reign in heaven, and you are our source of supply and comfort, that you fulfill and meet our every need. We ask that even this morning as we open your word, that you would meet us and meet our need to be encouraged and instructed and taught from your word by your Holy Spirit, even this morning. So would you help me communicate clearly? Would you help us receive what your word has for us, that we might turn around and praise you for your faithful supply? Speak to us through your word, encourage our hearts, build us up where we need to be built up. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning, River City. We are a people called as disciples of Jesus and called to make disciples of Jesus. It's part of our mission as a local church. Our message is the gospel. It's the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and glory of Jesus, who by his death conquered death. By his death pays the debt that we owe for sin and rebellion. And by faith we receive God's pardon and we are welcomed into a new life, a relationship with God which is a gift of his remarkable grace to us. It is a privilege for us to gather together and worship as God's people this morning. Now, All the way back in January of 2020, which seems like 100 years ago, we began a series in the Gospel of Luke that we've continued each spring, and we're going to continue this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bibles if you have them and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and they can hand you one and you can follow along. If you do not have a Bible of your own, please take one of these with you. Now, a little background on Luke to kind of get us back into the swing of things, because it's been a while since we've been in Luke. We know from the book of Colossians that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor, the good doctor, Luke, and and a likely disciple of the apostle Paul. Luke is credited with writing both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They are a matched pair. Luke and Acts go together. Luke focuses on the life and ministry of Jesus while on earth in the flesh, and the book of Acts focuses on what happened after Jesus ascends, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, where the message of Jesus, the gospel, spreads, and the church is established, and it multiplies across cultures and nations and peoples. And so the central theme of Luke's gospel comes from Luke chapter 19, which I'm excited about that we'll actually get to, Lord willing, this semester. We've been looking at it for three years, but now we get to actually talk about it. Luke 19, where the central message of Luke is this, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. 
That's his aim, his goal, his mission. And we get to see that here. Now we're going to pick up our series in Luke 16. And before we get to read our text, I have two other little bits of context that I'd like to give us to help us kind of bring us back up to speed so we're not just dropping into the middle of Luke. Like, what is going on? Well, here's what's going on. A couple things. There's two of them. First, in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, it contains a parable. Now, a parable is a story told in order to make a point. Jesus uses parables all the time in his teaching. And there's a few things I want us to remember about parables that, is, that I think will be helpful for us, not just this morning, but anytime we come across a parable in the Gospels. The first is this. Parables tend to have a singular meaning. One meaning, not many meanings. There's one big idea that a parable is designed to communicate. And this is on purpose. Jesus often used parables in his teaching and not to be intentionally obscure or hard to understand, but as a way to emphasize that those people who had open ears, who were humble, who wanted to hear what Jesus had to say when he spoke in these terms, would understand what he was trying to tell them. But those who were closed off to Jesus, those who didn't want to hear what he had to say, those who were hostile to him, They would often scoff at what Jesus taught. They were hard for him to understand. So the idea here, the first thing to remember about parables is that they're intended to get to one main point. And here's another thing about parables which is helpful for us anytime we come across them. Parables, not every part of the parable is equally significant. Not every part of the story has a special meaning. Now, there are some unique parables. Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, is a pretty popular, common one that many people know. A farmer goes out to sow seed, and some of the seed falls on rocky soil, and some falls on good soil, and some falls among the weeds. And Jesus goes on to say that, you know, each of those types of soil represents the condition of the heart of a person, right? That parable is a little unique. But most of the time, the secondary components or elements of a parable are just there to support the story and don't have a lot of other meaning. It would have been understandable to the people and culturally relevant. They would have heard what Jesus was saying and say, yes, I understand that situation or that person or that circumstance. But all the little bits and pieces are meant to support the story. They don't necessarily have significant meaning on their own. Here's an example. In Luke 15, the chapter before here, we read the parable of the lost coin. Woman loses a coin, turns on a lamp, sweeps the entire house to find this lost coin. Now we can mistake, uh, we can uh, make a mistake when we look at a parable like that, when we try to make more of certain elements. For example, you could overview the parable and say, well, the broom is like the Holy Spirit who sweeps the dark recesses of your life to bring about God's choice treasure. Where's the Holy Spirit sweeping under the couch of your life? Now, if someone said that, I mean, good, I guess, but I don't think it's helpful. I think in this parable, the broom is a broom. That's all the parable is, because the main idea of the parable is what? It's the rejoicing that happens when what is lost is now found. It's the same with the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son. And the Pharisees of the day, they didn't understand that. The thing they didn't get wasn't about brooms. What they didn't get was that all of heaven rejoices 
when a sinner comes to faith. All of heaven rejoices when their lost brother is restored to the family, right? So it's important just to remember, as we look at parables, they have a meaning, and not all the parts are intended to have some other deep secondary meaning. They're meant to support the main idea. That's just helpful for us as we come to parables. The second thing I want us to remember um, comes from our context. Like I mentioned, chapter 15 comes before chapter 16. I know, duh. And in chapter 15, the parables of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, which come right before here, Jesus was directing at the religious Pharisees of his day, those who didn't understand God's grace. They didn't rejoice when a lost sinner was found. They scoffed at him like, look at that guy, right? And our passage today comes right after that. So we did a little bit of a disservice by cutting off at the end of 15, it just was kind of how the calendar fell, because 16 is in the same conversation, the same set of teaching from Jesus. And so I just want us to have that background on parables and background on the context as we look at 16. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. And one thing that's really interesting is, we'll read it here in a second, in chapter 16, Jesus turns from the Pharisees who he's talking to, and he turns to his disciples. So the beginning of chapter 16 is directed at his followers. So, let's get into this interesting, somewhat bizarre and challenging parable and passage today, shall we? Let's read together Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 13. That's what we'll cover today. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. He, Jesus, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what excuse me, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, a friend of mine once said, anytime you talk about money, people get weird. It's not just in church. Like, Anytime money comes up, everyone goes, what do I do, right? We like what money affords us, but we get weird about it, right? 
Maybe we don't quite see it as much here in our Midwestern culture. I mean, there's some of that, right? A nice car or other luxury item kind of uh, gives us uh, some kind of a status symbol or a boost. But even in our humble Midwestern culture, our brag isn't about usually about how much something costs. In our context, our brag is about how good of a deal we got. Right? Hey, I like those shoes. Oh, these shoes? They were on sale. I got them at a thrift store. Right? Which, as an aside, like we thrift all the time because all of our people grow out of their clothes in about five minutes. Right? Right? We're still talking about money, but we're talking about how much money we didn't have to spend and still look this fly, right? Like we can say, look at the deal I got. That's how we talk about money kind of in, in the Midwest. And the parable here isn't about money per se. It's really about the heart. That's really what it's getting at. It's about faithfulness. And money and our relationship to it and to stuff is the diagnostic tool that tells us what we really love. That's, I think, what Jesus is getting into here tells us, are we looking and living for only the immediate things and the temporary things in front of us, or are we living with eternity in view? So verse 13 kind of sets up our message, gives us the problem that we need to address. Jesus tells his disciples at the end of this little section, you can't serve two masters. And that's the challenge for us. We are often trying to serve multiple masters, but ultimately we can serve one You can't serve multiple masters. And Jesus is using this parable, this little section of of Scripture, I think, to lead his disciples and us to this reality. Here's the big idea. The faithful servant uses all that the master provides with eternity in view. The faithful servant uses all that the master provides with eternity in view. So let's take a look at this parable and what Jesus is saying. Two kind of points from our text today, just kind of two things to take away. There's a commendation, you're commended for shrewdness and called to stewardship. Commended for shrewdness and called to stewardship. Just two points today, the sermon won't be any shorter, but just two points. So let's get after this interesting parable uh, and this idea of a dishonest manager who's commended for being shrewd. Let me outline the parable. We just read it, but let me just give you the, the quick breakdown. Jesus is telling a fictional story but one that people could understand. This isn't a real person or a real situation, but he's telling a story that people go, yes, I understand that. In a home or in an estate like this, where there was likely some wealth, there would be a man who would serve as manager. He would work for the master of the house, and so all the business dealings of the master would run through the manager. All the bookkeeping, all the inventory, all the supplies, who took care of the lawn, right? All of that. I don't know if they had a lawn in first century Near East cultures, but you get what I'm saying? All the management of the house for the master, on behalf of the master, would run through the manager. He'd have authority to sign contracts, to make deals, to purchase items, to do business on behalf of his master. And word comes to the master of the home that the manager working for him is dishonest and untrustworthy. Now, we don't know the details of what those charges actually are. We don't know what he did. It doesn't matter for the story. But we do kind of know two things. One, it's a credible charge because the master of the house doesn't question it. He goes to him and says, I heard this about you. It's credible. You're fired. 
So it's credible. And two, they're likely true. The charges are likely accurate because the manager who is called out doesn't defend himself at all. He just spends the rest of the story trying to cover his own butt. That's what he does. Trying to save his own skin the rest of the story. So they're probably credible. Whatever the charges are, the accusations, and they're probably true for this guy. And so this now disgraced manager recognizes the situation he is in. That's what's happening. He's not very strong, so he wouldn't do well, you know, pushing a shovel. So construction's out. And he's got too much pride, so begging for people to take care of him with a cardboard sign in the corner, that's not going to work. But verse 4, he knows what he's good at. So he makes a plan to use his skills with people and his skills with money in order to provide for himself some kind of safety net for the inevitable time when his firing is official. So Jesus tells us his manager goes to some of the people who owe debts to his master. They owe him product. In this case, oil and grain. And his plan is to renegotiate what is owed to make it better for himself. Listen, the first one, verse 6. Someone owes the master 100 measures of oil. It's approximately 875 gallons of olive oil. And the manager says, cut that down by 50. You don't owe him 100 measures anymore. You only owe him 50 measures. The second one, verse 7, owes his master 100 measures of wheat. That's between 1,000 and 1,200 bushels of wheat. To put that in perspective for city boys like me, a semi-truck grain hopper holds approximately 1,000 bushels of wheat. And the manager says, cut that down. I think it's right. At least the internet told me it's right. Cut that down by 20% or so. Write down 80 instead of 100. So to us, 800 to 900 gallons of oil or a truckload of wheat is really small change as it relates to like the agriculture market for us. Like fields deal in tens and hundreds of thousands of bushels of wheat for large farms. But think about it for a second. The economics of first century Near East agriculture, this is years worth of olive oil production and years worth of grain production. So this manager is unilaterally on his own reducing the debts of what is owed to his master. And we know he's doing it of his own accord because he tells the man who owes oil, go write it down quickly. Essentially, go fill out your receipt quickly so I can sign it quickly before I get fired. And the people who are having their debts reduced know that this man has the authority to make those decisions. And what happens? Look at verse 8. This is the, one of two really weird parts about this passage of Scripture. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Excuse me? Shrewd means clever. It means aware. Someone who acts quickly and wisely with a sense of clarity about what's really going on. The master who just lost half of what is owed him by one person in oil and 20% of what's owed him in grain from another finds out what this manager has done and he says to him, well done. Does that strike you as odd? It strikes me as odd. He's commended, but notice he's not commended for his dishonesty. He's not commended for his unrighteousness from before. He's commended for his cleverness, 
for his shrewdness. And this is an important distinction. Remember, all the parts of a parable don't have equal importance. It's clear the manager is an unrighteous and a dishonest man, but he is shrewd in his actions, and that's what's being commended. The parable ends here, and Jesus tells us what it means. Look at the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. So Jesus ends the parable, and he says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. We're going to come back to verse 9 here in a second, I promise, because that's also weird. But what is Jesus saying here? Here's at least part of it, I think. The dishonest and unrighteous manager has leveraged, has used the debt of his master in order to secure for himself a future. And in honor culture like this, these men would now be indebted to him. They know that this manager got them a very good deal. <laughs> so when the time comes and this guy needs a place to sleep or a job, who do you think he's going to call? Not the guy who fired him. He's going to call these guys and say, hey, you remember that deal I got you? I'm going to call in my favor now. He uses money in order to make friends for himself so that when he comes upon hard times, he'll have someone who will welcome him in. And Jesus says, the sons of the world do this all the time. They do it all the time. They understand how the world works and they act with shrewdness with one another. And hear me, this is the part makes you uncomfortable. The ability to understand the times and to understand the reality of a situation and to act accordingly is a commendable trait. Now, maybe that makes you a little uncomfortable because it might appear that Jesus is kind of seemingly endorsing this underhanded, kind of sleazy way of doing business, but that's not what's happening. The manager is clearly referred to as a dishonest and an unrighteous man. Jesus even qualifies the, the, the value of money, the stuff. He calls it unrighteous wealth in verse 9. Now, he's not talking about money that's been acquired unrighteously or, or underhandedly or through theft or sinful behavior or exploitation. He's not saying that. He's just saying they use worldly wealth for worldly ends, and they know how to do it. They look at the market, they look at what's happening in the real world, and they go, I need to do something different. How does a worldly person use their worldly goods? Well, to make their, the most out of their life in this world. That's what Jesus is saying. They do that well. Just how most of the world views money and possessions. Jesus says it. People who are worldly make that money work for them to serve themselves. Now, their aims are selfish or temporary, but they make the most of what they have in order to achieve their own temporary pleasures and security. And Jesus, hear me, is not endorsing that approach to money or business. What Jesus is saying is that the sons of the world, people who have their minds set on earthly things and temporary life only, will act with decisiveness to accomplish those ends. And then he draws a contrast, which is a very important thing to understand when you're reading a parable like this, the contrast between the sons of 
the world and the sons of light. He goes, this is different. Sons of light don't tend to operate with this kind of forward thinking, but they should. One of the most helpful tools in understanding this passage is this contrast. Sons of the world versus sons of light. Disciples of Jesus are called to a type of shrewdness, but with a different end, a different aim, a different goal. So here's the contrast. Sons and daughters of the world, people, use worldly wealth for temporary ends. But sons and daughters of the light should use worldly wealth for eternal ends. Jesus is drawing a contrast. Which leads us to our second point in the rest of our text. It's not merely commended for shrewdness. There's built in here, for the people of God, a call to stewardship. Remember, Jesus has turned to his disciples in this section to give them some instruction. Now, the Pharisees who he was just speaking with are still there. We're going to get to them next week. Verse 14, the, uh, verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. So like they're right there. They hear it. We'll get to that. But he's saying to his disciples, you are not merely sons of the world. You belong to me now. You're sons of light. You're called to steward the wealth of your master, not for unrighteous gain, like the man in the parable that I just told you, like the unfaithful servant, but you're meant to manage it, steward it for things of eternal significance. You're a steward, a manager of whatever the master has placed in your care, and you're called to be faithful with it. Look at verse 10. Jesus then says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you're faithful in a little, with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. Verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You can't even manage someone else's property, which isn't even yours. Well, what's going to happen when you get your own? Jesus is giving his disciples, and I think giving a little bit of a heart check. And he's using their view of money to do it. He's pressing his disciples to consider, it doesn't matter what you have. If you have $5 or $500 or $5 million, it doesn't matter. No matter what the amount is, your desires and your aims will show based on how you see and relate to and use whatever it is that you do have. I don't know if you've ever read the statistics on those who win the lottery or, or, or young sports stars who get massive contracts at age 19, 20, 21. The numbers are absolutely crazy. And, and so many of the statistics are self-reporting, so it's likely that the numbers are even higher. One uh, article I read, 70% of lottery winners... 70% of lottery winners over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I think, no matter if it was a million dollars or a thousand dollars or $500 million, 70%, likely more, have spent or lost all of their winnings within five years or less. 70%. That's insane. One uh, story I read in Sports Illustrated reported that up to 78% of NFL players and 60% of NBA players fall into significant financial hardship within just a few short years after retiring from the sport. Now, there are lots of factors involved in that. And we don't have to get into all of that, but I think it at least gets at the idea of what Jesus was saying. If you're undisciplined with $5, 
you're probably going to be undisciplined with 500. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. And that's the significance, I think, of the parable. That there's this guy who's spiritually bankrupt, but he's really savvy about what he has available to him as he thinks about the future. Good for him. But his story ends there. Jesus says, the sons of light, you should be just as savvy, just as shrewd, but your willingness to risk or leverage shouldn't be for temporary aims, but for eternal ones. That's what I think Jesus is getting at here. So here's a point of application for us. If everything that you have is from God, you are a manager of all of God's stuff. So, use what God has given you for eternal purposes and eternal means. That, I think, is a pretty tangible takeaway from a passage like this, that we can use what God has given us for eternal purposes and eternal means. The shrewd manager gave thought to the future, and it shaped how he acted in the present. For him, he knew he would need financial resources in order to survive. So it was worth the risk for him to use what belonged to his master that was at his disposal to see if he could secure something for his future. And that's a reality. Temporary earthly wealth can secure, often, temporary security. But we are not bound only to the temporary, are we? You and I are given a clear vision for an eternal future, are we not? Jesus later tells his disciples, when he commissions them out, that they're going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus says things like, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Jesus ascends to the heaven and he says, I'm going to, it's good that I go because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to live and dwell in you and work in you and among you. Jesus says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back in glory. I'm going to put an end to all my enemies. I'm going to make all things new and you're going to be with me forever. So the commendation to be shrewd is, is hidden or covered, comes within the call to be stewards of all that Jesus, our master, has given us. And that vision for our future, an eternal perspective, should then shape how we act and live here in the present. Let's get back to verse 9 for a second. I'm not going to skip over it. I said the master's uh, commendation of the manager was a weird part. This is the weirder part of the passage. Verse 9, I tell you, just Jesus speaking to his disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. How do we understand a verse like this? I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If you've read this passage before and you're like, that's weird. Moving on, right? Maybe that's been your approach to Luke 16, verse 9. Well, here we go. Let me ask you this. Who is going to receive you into eternal dwellings? Well, God himself, for one. Who's worshiping around the throne? Brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, language, and people are gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lamb forever. Who's welcoming you into the eternal kingdom, is it not other brothers and sisters in Christ? So I think Jesus is instructing his disciples here 
to invest in the kingdom and to use their temporary wealth, whatever it is, to make it possible so that other people might join them in the kingdom. Here's what, here's what that means. You and I are being invited to use what God has given us so that the gospel might be proclaimed, so that sinners might get saved. And if sinners get saved, then they spend eternity with us in glory. Now, we know we can't buy our way or buy anyone else's way into heaven, but I think Jesus is saying we can and should leverage everything, risk what God has given us in order to expand gospel opportunities. So as Jesus says, go ahead and use all of your earthly stuff to purchase friends for eternity. Here's another way to say it that maybe sounds a little less weird. Invest in what proclaims the gospel and brings people to salvation. Invest in kingdom priorities. Uh, Nathan Jornstad and I, here's, a, here's an example of that. Uh, Nathan Jornstad and I, Nathan's one of our elders. He's kind of spearheading our uh, the fundraising part of the building project upstairs. Uh, he and I had a conversation on Friday of this week, just a couple days ago, uh, with someone who doesn't go to River City, uh, but he loves Jesus. He knows what we're about um, and what we're hoping to accomplish with this project that we're taking on, scaling up our ability to make disciples and multiply leaders and multiply churches. So, so Nathan and I sat down with this guy, wondering if he was interested in supporting what we were doing. Thought a cup of coffee is, that's low risk, right? I mean, it's Starbucks, so it's like three and a half bucks instead of like 38 cents at home. But still, three and a half bucks, probably worth it. So I sat down for a cup of coffee, and in talking with him, it was clear, excuse me, it was clear that his approach to money is, yes, his local church, yes, the ministry there, and, but also to, to generosity, to support the work of the Big C Church, uh, whether that's cross-cultural missions or it's campus ministries here in the area or other churches who are doing stuff that he's like, yes, this is good and commendable, and I want to see that happen. Anywhere that he feels that there can be an impact for the kingdom, for eternal purposes. And so over a cup of coffee on Friday, this brother in Christ offered a pretty significant donation to our project. And I, and I, I say that, and, and my first response when he told us, hey, I'd like to give this amount, my first response was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm almost embarrassed to share that with you. My first response wasn't like, I don't know, it was just like sort of dumbfounded. I did turn and then say thank you right afterwards. But my first response was like, oh, cool. Uh, thank you, right? Like, I felt kind of dumb because I was a bit floored, right? I mean, you go into a meeting like that hoping that someone wants to contribute. But then it was just more generous than I had thought. And what's beautiful about it is this brother doesn't give for recognition. He straight up said, I do not want a reward here. I do not want my rewards here. I want my rewards there. So I'm not telling you who he was or how much he gave. But I'm using it as an illustration of someone who I think understands using whatever it is that God's put in front of him for kingdom ends. His desire to invest is to invest in what God has given him into the kingdom and in things that proclaim the gospel. Because earthly money stays on earth right? I was in this play in high school. You can't take it with you. I don't know if you've seen that. I wasn't very good in it, right? Earthly money stays on earth. You can't take it with you in the life to come, but you can use it here with eternity in view. So in this parable, Jesus is challenging his disciples to not only think beyond what is just merely earthly to things eternal, 
when it comes to things like money, but also to remember that we are just managers. We are stewards in our master's house so that our aim is to honor and please the master by investing all that we have at our disposal for his glory to ultimately advance his kingdom. What does he want to do with his stuff? Well, to make his name glorious and to bring joy to people by welcoming them into the kingdom. So we spend all of his stuff as his stewards in that way. So as a point of application, there should be some, I think, self-examination for us that comes from a parable like this. It's been a good wrestle for my heart, not just to get through the weird parts of the parable, but then to like wrestle through, what is this saying to, to my heart? Am I, am I too passive sometimes about money and stuff? Do we hoard Are we frivolous in ways we shouldn't be? Are we thoughtful and strategic as we live here in this world? That as we live here, are we living not for this world, but for the world to come? And asking ourselves, what are the things that God has entrusted to us? How can we invest them in kingdom priorities? And it's not just money. Like I said, money is kind of the idea here in this passage, but it's the diagnostic tool. What are the things that God has entrusted to you? What skills or talents do you have? Maybe you're good with cars and there's people who could maybe stand to have their brakes done for a little cheaper. Maybe you can help with that. People have helped me with that from this church, right? What other skills do you have or talents or abilities? What about your own car? Does someone need a ride somewhere? Or your home as a place of hospitality, of inviting someone in for a meal and some friendship, some conversations about Jesus, your family, your time, right? The big idea from this parable is that we need to be careful not to fool ourselves into thinking that we can serve God and we can serve anything else. We are not owners, we are stewards. And if we belong to Him, then we are His, all of us. And not just all of us, but all of who we are belongs to Him. And if all of who we are belongs to Him, then I'm sure that all of us is then useful in the kingdom, in His service. Now, these are questions that I can ask, but I can't answer for you in terms of specifics. You can wrestle with these on your own, in your families, in your community groups this week, and I I want you to do that. And there's one last thing um, as we close. Um, I have a, we kind of have here a, a principle. I didn't clear this with the rest of the guys, but I think we're cool with it. Uh, a principle that we work to apply as we prepare to preach a text of Scripture. Anytime that we take the responsibility of standing here and opening God's Word, we want to be clear that we leave no naked imperatives. Here's what I mean. An imperative is a command or an instruction. And there are many of them all over Scripture. In fact, in this parable, I think what rises to the surface is an instruction, a command to Be thoughtful about how we steward God's stuff that we're entrusted with. To serve Him only. To see ourselves as stewards and not as owners. These are all good things. But I want to be really clear. I don't want you to leave here thinking, I just have to do better. I don't think that's good gospel preaching. All our imperatives, we want to be grounded. All of our commands are grounded in indicatives. Things that are true and already done. Gospel preaching grounds all imperatives in indicatives. For the believer, all of our do's and don'ts are are grounded, are rooted in things that are done. So the call 
that we hear from Scripture, that I hope you hear from me this morning, to be faithful, well, afternoon, to be faithful servants, is grounded in the finished truth and reality that Jesus himself is the true and better faithful servant. As Christians, I think we need to anchor it there. Here's what I mean. Jesus said this himself. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to to serve. When Jesus is asked over and over again, why do you do what you do? Why do you hang out with sinners and the poor and the outcasts? Jesus' response is, I'm just doing what the Father is doing. I'm just doing what he has told me to do. In his life on earth, Jesus didn't have much wealth. He wasn't uh, high in status or anything really fancy to look at. But he stewarded the life the Father gave him perfectly. Jesus strategically spent every ounce of his time and every drop of his own blood in order to purchase friends for eternity. That's what Jesus did. John 15, he says, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his father's business is all about. But you do. I've welcomed you in. And why? Why did Jesus endure the cross and the tomb? Hebrews 12 says it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus is faithful to the very last. And I don't want us to miss that as we're processing through this parable. Because of his faithfulness, we are made new. Christ, our faithful servant, calls us to join him in faithful service. So as stewards, we can then use all that our good father has provided for us. And we can leverage it and risk it and spend it, all of it, with eternity in view. And my prayer is this, that Father, you would make us shrewd stewards for your glory and for the joy of many people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you use the foolish things of the world to shame those who think they're wise and the weak things of the world to shame those who think themselves strong. We come now as we came to you earlier in weakness and in need. Thank you that you are a good and faithful master who is patient with his foolish servants. And you take us from our place of brokenness and foolishness and you meet us there and you change us from fools and servants to friends and sons and daughters. We do ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction in areas where we are not thoughtful, where we are self-focused, where our vision for our future is far too low and temporary, and that you'd expand our view with an eternal picture, and we'd respond accordingly. Would you encourage our hearts as we come to the table in seeing the bread and the cup as tangible reminders of your love for us, and that you'd receive our worship Would you challenge, encourage, convict, and help us to celebrate all that you are and all that you have done? 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.